Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. We were both raised to believe that it's impolite to talk politics or religion. Today, we're doing both. We're joined by Michael Weir, author of Reclaiming Hope, to discuss finding a healthier intersection of faith and voting. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Welcome to another episode, everybody. We are so ready to be back from vacation and on our regular schedule. So today we're sharing an awesome interview with Michael Weir. We are so excited about. Um, we're going to start the show with some news updates from the Golden Globes with Mama Oprah. And Beth has dived into the new and controversial book on the Trump administration, Fire and Fury. We will also end the show with what we're thinking about outside politics. And we were lucky that Michael stayed to join us for that segment. So it's a kind of different what's on our mind outside of politics. today. Yeah, I'm excited. Well, let's talk about what is on your mind first, Sarah, because as I have learned, that is where we always need to start. So have at it. You live tweeted the Golden Globes. I saw that you had lots of fun Twitter interaction. 
Yes, I did. I love award show. I particularly love political award show. Usually the Golden Globes is sort of like the Oscars drunk cousin. Like everybody's a little tipsy. People act a little crazy and spacey. This was a much more solemn Golden Globes than we're used to. Um, fewer jokes, fewer drunk people, although there was a hilarious uh, Twitter moment in which Tom Hanks went to the bar and brought back a whole tray of martinis to his table, which I thought was adorable. But overall, the Hollywood industry is still reckoning from the Harvey Weinstein and Me Too Time's Up movements. And so that was definitely predominantly on everyone's mind. The women and men all were black. There was literally like one or two dresses that weren't black. Everyone was in black. Um, most of the men and several of the women were sporting the Times Up button. Times Up is a new organization of um, females in Hollywood who are trying to su- be supportive of the Me Too movement outside their industry, like demanding um, pay equity and several changes within Hollywood, but also um, putting together a legal defense fund for women in other industries who might not have the resources to um, protect themselves against sexual harassment. So I think it's a really positive and really encouraging movement. So that's what Time's, time's Up means. So that was on everyone's mind. Seth Myers hosted the award ceremony, came right out the date, came right out the gate with welcome ladies and remaining gentlemen, which I thought was pretty funny. Overall, there's, I was a little disappointed that almost every female winner spoke to the moment and almost every male didn't, which was a little disappointing. It's also how the red carpet rolled. Like every woman was asked, almost no men were asked. I did see a Twitter exchange where someone was like, believe that publicists told E Entertainment or the Today Show beforehand, like my client is willing to talk about Me Too or my client isn't, which I think is kind of crap, but whatever. I mean, the red carpet is not really a journalistic moment. I get that. Um, there was an amazing moment in which Deborah Messing was like, I'm really disappointed to see E Entertainment does not pay their female and male co-hosts equally, like just called them out all up in the red carpet. Because recently a female co-host who was named, is not in my brain at the moment, um, quit because she wasn't being paid fairly. So lots of really great moments and um, speeches in which people spoke to um, sort of their past interactions with the movement, like Nicole Kidman gave a really beautiful shout out to her mother and her mother's political activism. There's a really great moment in which um, Reese Witherspoon, Big Little Lies, um, the HBO series based on Leanne Moriarty's book, won a lot of awards. And she said, you know, she won or the show won, Laura Dern won and Nicole Kidman won. And Reese Witherspoon, when the show won, said, like, we looked about it. We looked around each other at the table, all these women and said, like, committed to each other. And Anne Helen Peterson, one of my favorite pop culture writers, was like, "This see, this is what women and people of color were not allowed to do. Like, they were not allowed to sit around and support each other and, and sort of work the levers of power as a group um, because they were either segregated or turned against each other in, every, in a lot of industries. So I thought that was a really beautiful moment. But then Mama Oprah came to the stage, and it was amazing. So she won the um, Cecil B. DeMille Award, which is like the big sort of lifetime achievement award. She was the first black woman to win the award. Um, There was a lot of speculation about her speech. Was she going to be political? Um, The answer was yes. She 
did this amazing speech that sort of just walked us through her moment as a child, which she talks about a lot of watching Sidney Poitier win the Oscar and how impactful that was on her um, to see someone who looked like her in that scenario, um, sort of to the you can't be what you can't see which we say on this podcast a lot. Um, she moved through. She talked about Reese Taylor, a woman in um, the Deep South in the 1940s who was attacked and raped by a group of white men and who went to seek justice um, against all odds and in an environment in which just reporting a crime like that was a dangerous act. And she actually reported it to Rosa Parks. Um, and Reese Taylor died recently. And she just used all of these moments to sort of weave together this beautiful idea of the Me Too movement and that there are little girls watching her right now as the first black woman and acknowledging how hard this moment is and how the industry has become the story. Um, but there is absolute truth in the world and we have to acknowledge that. And the truth is that sort of women have been attacked and intimidated and excluded by men in power. And then she had this moment where she was like, but to the, to those men, your time is up. Oh, so I was, I was felt like I was at church. I was yelling, um, even repeating, talking about the speech. I'm, I'm trying not to cry. And then she went on to say, you know, over the course of my career, I have looked at humanity and examined humanity and told the stories of so many people and the people who survive and thrive that the thing they share is hope. And See, look, I'm crying. And I want to tell these little girls a new day is dawning and there will become a day where all of us will stand together and you will never have to say me too again. Oh, oh, Oprah. She just did what she always does. You know, she does. She is brilliant and inspiring. And man, I don't it was so unbelievable and so articulate and beautiful and just had this vision. And I think. Um, for so many people who miss sort of the, the hope and change of Obama and somebody leading from a place of calling us to our better angels and speaking to hope and resiliency and the good in people, it was so needed. It was just so needed. And to come from somebody who I just love so much. I mean, I call her mama Oprah, not to be flipped, but because literally I realized a few years ago that when the show ended, like, I don't remember watching Oprah for the first time. I have always watched Oprah. The run of that show coincides pretty closely with my lifespan. And from when I was in elementary school till when I was pregnant with Amos and the show ended, I watched Oprah every single weekday at four o'clock. And so that was a very, she's always been a very consistent influence in my life. And so she does sort of feel like this other mother figure to me. And so to have her speak, to have her speak so eloquently, to have her acknowledge people's pain, inspire us to a better day. It just, oh, Mama Oprah, I love you so much. I was reading last night while the TV was on, but I know you. And so I watched Oprah before I got out of bed this morning. And I thought it was a beautiful speech. I don't want to just gush about it because that's not my role here. But <laughs> I did think it was I thought it was great. I thought it was great that it was political without yep. mentioning President Trump. Yep. I appreciated that it wasn't his moment. It was hers. Mm -hmm. And I think we need more of that. Mm -hmm. I think that Oprah didn't attack anybody, nope. which was lovely. 
She just said, journalism is important. Truth is important. This movement is important. And representing people who have not been represented before is important. And I thought it was a really positive way to be political at an award show. And I appreciated that. I also loved that she spoke about the women who aren't the faces of Me Too, Mm -hmm. but who are living the experience of harassment and abuse every day when she kind of listed domestic workers, farm workers, women who work in restaurants. I thought that was such a great moment. And I'm glad that she... Despite like having that sort of, uh, revival, your time's up, it's right now kind of moment, I think she did manage to acknowledge that this is going to take a while. And it, that was on my mind this morning too, because I read this, um, article about how Wall Street masks sexual harassment happening in Wall Street. And I've just been thinking about how it's wonderful that Hollywood is here. And that's how it goes with with fashion and other things, right? Hollywood's there, and then the rest of us kind of come along. So I'm not trying to take anything away from Hollywood. I was happy that she acknowledged that it it's going to take some time for this to roll out across the country. Well, and I thought that everyone did a very good job of using their let me re- let me rephrase that. I think the women in particular of Hollywood did a very good job of using their platforms at this award show in a very positive and universally empowering way. So many, many, many people um, brought activists as their dates to the award show and then seated their time on the red carpet for the activists to talk about their work and their areas of involvement, which was really amazing. Like Michelle Williams brought uh Tarana, I hope I'm pronouncing her first name right, Burke, who founded the Me Too movement on MySpace several years ago. Also, her face, toward a, sort of towards the end of Oprah's speech, was phenomenal. Um, Ava DuVernay, who's the director, amazing director, directed Oprah and Reese Witherspoon and Mindy Keeling in the upcoming Wrinkle in Time movie, which everyone's really excited about, um, tweeted like that the energy in the room was electric. And so I think that, I think that her acknowledgement, I think the time up, movements, very purposeful um, language and the legal defense fund saying like, this is not just about us. We want to be very clear about this. And what we want to do is make sure we use this moment where everyone's paying attention to us to, to spread this movement even wider and do everything we can. I think that sort of they've they've been very conscious of that critique and have really tried to. But I also think it's so important to acknowledge that it wasn't just about Harvey Weinstein and how monstrous his crimes were, but I do think there's something so important about the fact that it was women who spoke up who we feel like we know as a group, as a, as a country. These people like women like Ashley Judd and Selma Hayek and just that moment of feeling like you identify with them. I think that that is sort of the power of celebrity. And I think it can be used in bad ways. See President Trump. But I think it can be used in really positive ways. And I think I wonder if Me Too would have taken off as as quickly as it did had it not been women we felt like we knew. And I think that they have um, the women involved, the, the celebrity women involved in the Me Too movement sort of as its leads, like Selma Hayek and Ashley Judd, um, have done such a good job of and Reese Witherspoon, of of using that in a very positive way to spread the movement further. And and I just thought that they handled it 
so beautifully. And I think, you know, some of the criticisms of Hollywood, um, it's really important to I'm not saying that there aren't hypocritical aspects of this industry, but I also think it's important to acknowledge that sometimes when we talk about Hollywood, we're talking about male leadership and female leadership in Hollywood, just like female leadership in any other industry, is going to look really different. And I think we saw that last night at the Golden Globes. The Hollywood Foreign Press also has um, recently elected a female president. And so that to me, which is what that was what was so inspiring of the whole sort of evening particularly Oprah's speech. Also, we must not forget of the major shade Natalie Portman threw real afterwards. Did you see this moment? No. Okay, so she walked up, her and Ron Howard walk up to present the Best Director Award after Oprah's speech. First of all, everybody's like barely able to contain themselves. You can tell that Natalie Portman has been crying. Um, also, she's wearing the most stunning dress. And so she walks out. She, they're, they're, her and Ron Howard are kind of like, oh my gosh. And he says, like, wow, that's amazing. Like, they're sort of like just recovering from Oprah's speech, as we all were. And he says, and they've, they've really cut at this point the like chitter chatter to introduce the awards because they're over time. Duh. So they walk out. He says, you know, the, the direct, here are the nominees for, or here, here is the award for best director. And Natalie Portman leans into the mic and says, here are the five all-male nominees. And everybody's like, And I think it was Emily Nussbaum, who's one of my – no, I think it was Emily Nussbaum, who's one of my favorite um, pop culture writers. She writes for The New Yorker. Was like, I really think that this is – a like her saying that was one of the most impactful moments because it wasn't – a part of a flowery speech. It was arguably a little rude because then they immediately went to the faces of these male directors and just sort of forced the um, the point in a different way than everybody in their dresses and the pens and the in the speeches to say, you know, friendly reminder, this is still a huge problem. We're not done here. And Men who are being nominated and receiving these awards, even if you are not a Harvey Weinstein, like the fact that there are only men in this category is a problem. Like it was just it was awesome. What's so great about that hearing it is that that is much more of an example of what women who aren't in Hollywood must do mm-hmm. to keep this to keep this rolling. You know, mm-hmm. we we don't get Oprah moments outside of Hollywood. But the Natalie Portman moment, you can have. Yeah. You can say, oh, I'm looking at this panel and there are no women on it. Yep. Or I'm looking at this list of candidates for this promotion and there are no women on it. I'm looking mm-hmm. at the people we've interviewed for this job. You know, that's the kind of thing where you really can get inspired to action in your everyday life. And I agree with you that the women of Hollywood seem to be very cognizant of using their platform for good. I want to mention that in addition to everything else you said about Time's Up, that website is an incredibly comprehensive resource um, symposium mm-hmm. almost. Like there are so many great resources on that website. It's very thoughtfully put together. It's easy to navigate. I think whatever situation you find yourself in, you could go there. It's much like Gretchen Carlson's book, right? It's meant to give you some tools right. to go out into the world and deal with your situation. So I, I applaud them too. I think it's terrific. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it wasn't a, it wasn't a 
flawless night. There are still some problems. Gary Oldman won an award. Gary Oldman has had um, domestic violence charges filed against him in the past um, in which he assaulted his wife in front of his children. Somebody needs to say something about this. Um, he has had said some really, really terrible things on the record involving this arrest. So, you know, it's sort of like the Casey Affleck, like we want to move on. But, y'all, we got to talk about the things right in front of our face. I think that three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri won several awards. Frances McDormand won. She was amazing. But I've read a lot about this movie. I've not seen it yet. It has some race problems. Like, let's not... Let's Hollywood, and I think they're doing a good job of this. They do tend to quickly pat themselves on the back. I'm hoping with more female leadership that will not be the path. Um, I'm really hopeful. I'd really like them to see see them um, take responsibility for Woody Allen just generally. Um, I'd like to see him take – he's never going to take responsibility. We should sure as heck try to force some responsibility on him. I read the most disturbing article this weekend about from someone who was hired by Amazon to go through his notes. So he has a really comprehensive library of his personal records at, at Princeton. And this guy says, like, he's the first one who's read them all. And he talks about how just over and over in every draft, in every essay, in every screenplay, there are references to young girls – over and over and over again. And it's like, you cannot ignore this man's problem. I don't know why Hollywood continues to. So I would like to see that change if anyone's listening um, from Hollywood. Oprah, maybe if Oprah's listening. Um, but overall, I thought it was beautiful. I don't think Hollywood has to be perfect to be moving in the right direction. I think it's an institution like um, everything else and and change comes slowly. But I'm so encouraged by the Golden Globes, and as always, inspired by Mama Oprah. Well, I also want to mention before we transition out of a very long segment on celebrity, that I thought (laughs) Sarah Silverman so beautifully used her power as a celebrity to respond to someone on Twitter who called her one of the worst things that you can call a woman. Just it looked like kind of randomly, like he just responded to her and threw this name out. And she took a look at his timeline, saw that he had back problems, started conversing with him, got a chiropractor to help him out, and just kind of showed that that's another thing. It's like Natalie Portman. These are the choices that we can make. Mm -hmm. These are the choices that those of us who aren't in Hollywood or aren't in Washington can make every day. I had a a not similar experience, but a a moving experience for me at a a family gathering. I was talking to uh, one of my dad's cousins about Roy Moore. And I said, you know, that there's just a part of me that wishes that vote could have been a hundred to zero because it, it's disturbing to me that there's even a question about whether he's qualified to serve in office. And my dad's cousin responded, well, I am worried about how we're just convicting men without any information. And, and so I felt myself do that inside. Right. But then I paused and I said, here's my question. Does it make sense to you that we need to overcorrect a little bit because we have underemphasized this issue for so long that so many people haven't had this conversation, that so many people haven't been held accountable, that it makes sense for us to go a little to the other extreme to try to get back on track? And to his credit, he sat back and he said, you know what? I think that's fair. Huh. 
And he said, I bet that you've seen a lot in your career. And I said, I have. <laughs> and, and it was, and it like just taking a second and choosing otherwise instead of walking away from the conversation, which is probably what I would have done normally. Or getting mad and being passive aggressive or saying something snarky that took the whole thing in a really negative direction. Like, I feel like we both just chose otherwise for a second. And it was really terrific. And I feel like Sarah Silverman's example of that is wonderful. And it's certainly on a scale that most of us don't have access to. Uh, but we do have those moments every day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's transition to Fire and Fury where I'm not sure there will be as many opportunities for good, fair choices in our responses. But I'm going to try. I'm going to try. It's so hard with this book because I genuinely don't want to talk about Steve Bannon ever again. I feel like Steve Bannon has been heard. And there are lots of people in the world with much more interesting um, philosophical and political viewpoints who have not been heard. And I wish we could move on from him. That said, I'm not going to trash this book. I mean, it's it's receiving a lot of mixed reviews. Everybody is quoting it at length, but then trying to pick it apart. There are some issues with the accuracy and the reporting that I've seen so far. But here's here's the thing I think to say about it. The problem for the White House is that there is nothing to contradict the overall portrayal of this president in the book. Mm-hmm. There is no one credibly reporting that the president is studious in meetings or that he prepares thoughtfully for conversations. Just today, Axios and one of Axios's reporters, Jonathan Swan, has been kind of beating up a little bit on the book. But he has a new article out about how the president is trying to limit his schedule and has penciled in blocks of hours called executive time for watching television and tweeting. No. So, ah. you know, the, the White House just doesn't have a way to say, no, overall, you're getting this character wrong. I think overall, he's getting this character right. And I think the reason the White House is reacting so strongly to this book, even though there really isn't any, like, bombshell in it. You kind of know all the things that you're going to read. And we've lived them close enough to real time. They're not distant memories. It's that putting it all together in one place and chronicling it for history is a different thing to fight than the 24-hour news cycle. You know, Trump can't just distract from this and it all go away. It's here, collected in one place for everyone throughout history to see exactly what's happened. And a lot of the book just contains Trump's own words. So they can call it fake all they want to. But the text of his speech to the CIA the day after he was inaugurated is what it is. And it's hard to fight with that. And I think that's why you see Stephen Miller coming out and trying to tear into Jake Tapper. And good luck, by the way, with tearing into Jake Tapper. He's not having any of your nonsense. And, you know, the president having this bizarre press conference from Camp David, and I believe Camp David was strategically chosen because the book quotes Kellyanne Conway as saying he'll spend zero days at Camp David. And saying that he's like a stable genius and a really smart person. I mean, the reaction is overkill, I think, because despite some factual errors here and there in the book, 
it is an accurate portrayal of the person that we've elected to be the president. Well, I think the biggest problem with for the White House with this book is that the president won't shut up about it. That's the first thing. Every time he responds, it just creates more and more of a story, particularly with this stable genius and about his actual mental health and capacity to do the job. So that's the first thing. I also feel like their response has been sort of contradictory. Like either it's it's like they've almost said two things. They've almost said like it's false, it's none of it's true, or you breached confidentiality in reporting it. Well, you can't breach confidentiality if it's not true. So I'm confused about your response. I, you know, not surprisingly, it hasn't been entirely consistent. But I mean, I think the the biggest problem, like I said, is that he's just going to keep talking about it, which is, you know, OK with me. I would like to continue the conversation about whether this man it, has the mental capacity to be, do this job. But all I've read is the I believe it was the Vanity Fair that did the long write up. And it was in, incredibly infuriating, particularly the part about how they thought they were going to lose. They were not prepared to do the job. And, you know, I was listening to the Ezra Klein show this morning. They were reporting from the woman from Lawfare about the Russia investigation and just the idea that, like, basically what happened with the whole collusion issue with the Trump campaign in a lot of ways is just they were amateurs. They do not understand the rules. They do not understand the shared values that even our two parties, when they are in desperate conflict with one another, try to protect. And it's so infuriating to see just the total and complete lack of awareness and experience with regards to what is on the line and the sort of importance and respect for the office of president. Like this is not the latest public relations stunt and your long career of a desperate desire for attention this is the presidency of the United States of America. And, you know, we all knew it. But like you said, reading it all together in one place like that is so incredibly disheartening and upsetting. One of the best passages in the book, I think, so far has been about the the Russia, the Russia thing, as they like to talk about it. And it, to your point, uh, Michael Wolf writes, and indeed the worry in the White House was not about collusion, which seemed implausible, if not farcical. But what if the unraveling began would likely lead to the messy Trump and Kushner business dealings? On this subject, every member of the senior staff shrugged helplessly, covering eyes, ears and mouth. This was the peculiar and haunting consensus, not that Trump was guilty of all that he was accused of, but that he was guilty of so much else. Mm. It was all too possible that the hardly plausible would lead to the totally credible. Yeah. And I think that's where we're going. I think that where we're going is we're going to start looking at this. They're just amateur mistakes and then can, you know, insistence on lying to cover it up. The only thing I think people miss, including in this discussion on the Ezra Klein show, is I do not think their interactions with Russia were only fueled by their total and complete lack of experience in politics. I think the bigger fuel, the bigger crime, the bigger 
universe of wrong waiting to be fully exposed is it was fueled by their financial interest in that company. And what I feel were probably very illegal ways. So I think that is what's, this wasn't just about, well, we'll work with anybody to try to beat Hillary Clinton because the inconsistency with that, with regards to Wolf's reporting is that they didn't think they were ever going to win. So if they didn't think they were going to win, if they didn't even really want to win, then why were they so anxious to work with and help Russia? This isn't about a foreign policy reset. This isn't about your desire to change the relationship with Russia and the United States. This is about your desire to continue the Russia, the relationship with Russia to further your own financial gain. I honestly believe that's what it was about. I don't think it had anything to do with politics, foreign policy, or their campaign. I think there's a big universe of financial interest out there that was really fueling them. I agree with that for sure. And I think that's consistent with the book. The one other thing I want to say about this now, and I'll return to it when I've finished the book, I've gotten pretty far into it, but I'm sure I'll have more to say when I finish. I like the reporting style here as an American citizen. I know it is up for debate in the journalism community. And I think Michael Wolf, interestingly, he writes with a lot of contempt for everything. He writes with contempt for the White House, certainly, in a way that sometimes I think detracts from the credibility, especially if you're a person who tends to believe that the liberal media is against everyone. The contempt is dripping, okay? I can also understand why, having been witness to so much, he might feel that way. But he also writes with some level of contempt about how journalism has become increasingly interested in itself. Mm. So I think he was anticipating the reaction to the way he reported this book. As an American citizen, I would like to see more of this. I would like to see more reporters planting themselves on couches in the White House, um, not uncontrolled and without anyone knowing them there. But I think that this, it reminds me of how I would rather see photojournalism from a wedding than the pictures that are created. And I like seeing a very unfiltered view conversations that were kind of messy about whether they were on the record or not. Because if we had a good functioning White House, a book written in this way could really add to our political discourse, I think. Mm. I think it could really show what hard choices have to be made every day, how long the hours are that people are working, how I think it could hold people to account for their attitudes and behaviors in a way that we haven't seen before. So the optimism that I will carry away from Fire and Fury, and you have to really look for that, um, is that I think that if journalism continues to dig into things this way, not without some grace and understanding that the people involved are all human beings, we could actually get to some journalism about our leaders that makes us proud and that aids in our understanding of what they do and that shows them to be uh, more dimensional than they seem right now. So I realized when we were discussing the lack of experience in the Trump campaign that we missed a major discussion point with regards to Mama Oprah's speech that I would like to go back to really quickly, which is immediately 
the chatter on Twitter and everywhere else was that speech was very presidential and it was very Oprah 2020. Lots of hashtags, Oprah 2020. So I have said previously that it feels like our country, the pendulum with which we, the cyclical, the cyclical change that we swing back and forth through is getting more and more extreme. So George W. Bush got us Barack Obama. Barack Obama got us Donald Trump. And I've said repeatedly, well, then what does Donald Trump get us? Oprah? Because it seems like the only appropriate response. So um, I thought it was interesting that her speech, which was very, I, I don't know if I would call it presidential, but it was very polished. It was political. It was inspiring. It was uplifting. So um, I know that I have repeatedly been on record <laughs> saying that one of my biggest problems with Donald Trump is his lack of experience. One of my favorite writers, Anne Helen Peterson, said last night, I don't think she's an experience because I think she shows that she can delegate and that she listens, which is really important. And I totally agree. Um, I would I struggle if it came out that Oprah was um, running for president with because of that um, aspect of her lack of po- particularly political experience. Sure, I would struggle. Would I get over it? Probably. And I don't seem to be the only one. It seemed to be a, uni- a, a not universal, obviously, but a very strong response from people were, which was, I hope she's running for president now. <laughs> Although she said she is not, and I don't think she will. But I didn't think Donald Trump was going to win either. So there you go. I have a lot of thoughts about this, but this is becoming the longest episode in fancy politics history. So let's compliment the other side <laughs> and then share our discussion with Michael Weir. And I will talk about Oprah's potential presidency another day. Um, I wanted to compliment Tabitha Eisner, who is a Democrat running for Congress in Alabama's second district. She came to my attention through my pastor. Tabitha Eisner is a DOC, Disciples of Christ. That's the denomination that I attend, ordained minister. And what I really loved on her website, and she's someone that I would love to have on the podcast at some point if we can make that connection. She writes, as I've watched the past several election cycles unfold, I have been saddened to see how politicians have tried to turn us against one another to convince us that we cannot be in real relationship, to convince us that we couldn't possibly understand someone else's hopes and fears. But we are not as divided as they want us to be. And I refuse to give up on having that kind of real relationship with all my neighbors. As a taxpayer, I care deeply about how public funds are spent. That's our money, and we have the right and responsibility to ensure it is spent smartly. That is why I support preventative investments such as early childhood education and strengthening our roads and infrastructure, because keeping things good is cheaper than fixing something after it's gone bad. I'm also committed to greater government transparency because we the people deserve to know exactly how our money is being spent. As your Congresswoman, I pledge to make the inner workings of government more accessible to every citizen and to fight against backroom deals and hidden agendas. I think there's lots of good stuff on her website, and I would just encourage you to check her out, Tabitha Eisner. I wanted to compliment um, an Indiana Republican. Um, He's in the House of Representatives in the state of Indiana, Matt Lehman. He has come forward sponsoring a resolution calling for an interim study committee to research medical marijuana. He said he still has reservations, but that since 29 other states allow it, that they maybe should talk to the experts and examine the data. What a nice, reasonable approach, Matt Lehman. Good job. Well, next up, we are talking to Michael Weir. I want to just set the table on this conversation by saying that it is very much about faith 
and religion in politics. And I know that we have a number of listeners who do not identify as a member of any faith community. As Sarah, I think, wisely mentions at one point during this interview, I think you can substitute virtues or values in a lot of these places. Um, I don't think that we're having a conversation, and we certainly didn't intend to have a conversation that excludes anyone who is not committed to a particular faith or who is atheist or um, even militantly so. So I hope that you'll listen and gain something from this discussion. Michael Weir was lovely to talk to, and we're really grateful for the opportunity to share this with you. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pansy. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors and I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. 
The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. We are so excited to have Michael Ware here. Michael, I recently read your post on pro-life voters and pro-choice politicians was like, this guy's a genius. This man is amazing. I love him. And then I realized that I already knew you from an episode of a podcast that I cannot remember the name of, but it was about Enneagrams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that episode. Uh, I was like, this guy and I need to be friends. We are on the same wavelength. <laughs> That's a uh, road back to you, my friend Ian Morgan Cron and Suzanne yes. Stabile's podcast. Yeah, it's so good. We're big personality people here at Pantsuit Politics. We love personality tests, Enneagrams, the whole shebang. And the way that you tied all that in and the faith and the politics, we were really, really feeling it. So I was so excited when I like made the connection of the blog post and the podcast so tell us a little bit about your background, about how you became the go-to guy for the intersection of faith and politics. Yeah, so I, uh, I, I mean, I don't want to uh, give too much, but, uh, you know, I'm from Buffalo, New York, from a big, a sort of uh, big Italian-American Catholic family, uh, but wasn't too connected to faith early on until uh, uh, 15 years old. I became a Christian after I uh, read the book of Romans. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, really that changed everything for me. I had been interested in politics since I was a little kid. uh, But now I thought, well, now I need to like go to seminary, become a pastor, uh, because, you know, what what is like the most religious thing I could do? (laughs) uh, (laughs) Like to make this real, you know, like, uh, but thankfully, I had folks in my life who are like, actually, you know, you can, uh, you can figure out what it means to be faithful in politics in public life. And so that's what I decided to do. I came to DC and went to George Washington University. And uh, you know, I tell the story in my book pretty early on. I ended up being, you know, at the at the wrong place at the at the uh, at the right place at, at the wrong time, though. But it turned out to be uh, the right time because while I had the wrong date for the event I was supposed to be at um, uh, uh, at the Washington Hilton Hotel. Uh, Barack Obama was at the hotel at, oh the, at the time that I was there, and we met. Uh, it was about a week before he was uh, set to announce he would run for president, and I told him I wanted to work for him. And about ten months later, I was in Iowa. So it, it was actually, uh, you know, we're recording this at the beginning of January. January third, two thousand eight, was the date wow. of the Iowa caucus. So that was just ten years ago. So uh, a lot of us Obama folks were getting a little nostalgic yesterday. Um, and so, yeah, I was doing faith stuff for the president, uh, then Senator 
Obama uh, right away, and uh, fortunately, we won that won that campaign. And he asked me to come to the White House and served there for three and a half years uh, in the Office of Faith Based and Neighborhood Partnerships, and uh, ran faith outreach for his reelect. It was it was an amazing, incredible ride where I got to see um, the good that faith based groups are doing around the country and really around the world and to and to help them in that work uh you know on behalf of the president i'll tell you what i read yesterday um a washington post it was like predictions for 2018 and one of them was the rise of the religious left do you feel like looking back on that beginning of that journey 10 years i feel like this as a member as somebody who considers themselves a member of the religious left that that is finally coming like it really is coming to fruition that all these sort of separate things and this there's there seems to be sort of a unifying movement, like a cohesiveness coming about um, with that part of the country, I guess. Yeah, you know, we'll see. It's di- it's difficult for the uh, religious left. Uh, there have been. High points, you know, people point to the the height of the National uh, uh, Council of Churches uh, in in the 80s. Um, obviously, you could point to the Civil Rights Movement uh, if you want to describe that in a um, you know in a political sense. Uh, and, and then, you know, I'd also point to you know post 2004 after the Bush won re-election, you had a rise of religious folks saying, "Well, why is?" Uh, I'm religious. Why? Why is that? Why is that brand of politics defining all of religion? And so you saw mm-hmm. groups like Faith and Public Life, Catholics uh, United, Catholics in Alliance for the Common Good, uh, really, really get going. Uh, you know, and now I look at leaders like Reverend William Barber in North Carolina, and you know, there's there's a real potential here. Sometimes what's hap- what happens, and we could talk about this in more depth. Uh, sometimes. Uh, uh, the Democratic Party and the progressive movement uh, swallows up religious uh, Mm. leaders and over time uh, they cease to be identified as religious and just kind of progressive. That's interesting. There's a dilution of uh, the religious motivation and, you know, uh, uh, progressive uh, people of faith are generally more uh, uh, you know, uh, open to being identified with other religious yeah. uh, groups and and it, uh, and and with religious causes, and so uh, sometimes they don't emphasize their faith in public ways as much um, as as uh, you know maybe would be helpful for having a having a clear religious movement. But we'll see if that's different this time around. Because it does seem like that's the opposite of what happens in the Republican Party. Like they don't get swallowed up at all. No, no, and and that's for um, you know there are some ideological and theological reasons for that. There are also just some pure political reasons for that. So, like mm-hmm. if you look at how faith outreach operates uh, in Republican campaigns, and you know clearly in this in this White House, uh, there the, the religious work happens from outside groups. So. Mm-hmm. 
uh, yeah, maybe they'll have a religious staffer, but that the the job of the religious staffer on a Republican presidential campaign uh, from the last three or four campaigns is to work with outside groups, not to do religious outreach directly from the campaign, really, yeah. uh, you know, to religious people. And in this White House, we see, you know, they claim that it's the height of religious access to the White House ever, which, uh, considering the fact that they still haven't hired a, a director of the office that I worked in, the, the faith-based office, uh, I, I have some, uh, some, some problems with that. But um, all of this uh, claim of religious access is through an informal outside group of advisors that no one elected, no one said, you represent mm. me. Um, and, and so it, it represents... Um, now, of course, the upside of that is that they are able to run their own shop. They don't have to worry about uh, the establishment clause. They don't have to worry about uh, being directly tied to the campaign or to the White House. There's a degree of separation. And so uh, that allows for their religious identity to be a bit more, um, you know, separated. I'm glad that you brought up the establishment clause. Can you speak in a little bit more granularity about what it means to do faith stuff as part of the administration? Yeah. So, um, uh, so the way that the White House Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships works, and you know that's a long name, so I re- I refer to it as a faith-based office as a as a shorthand. But the office works with uh, faith-based groups and secular, uh, generally smaller nonprofit organizations. So its its mandate really covers kind of the nonprofit sector, and the way that the office works. Not to get too granular, but uh, the White House office actually co-manages centers across the federal government. So there's a center for faith-based neighborhood partnerships at uh, Department of Health and Human Services that works on issues like uh, uh, drug uh, uh, rehabilitation, the opioid crisis, and adoption and fatherhood. There's a center at uh, FEMA that works on disaster relief. And really, you know, President Bush started the White House office because he recognized uh, how integral faith communities are to the key public challenges that are uh, you know, facing this country and that are in the government's interest to, to work on. And so the faith-based office works with um, uh, works to level the playing field, not to favor religious groups, but to work with the actors that are on the ground in communities uh, to 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 help our country move forward, um, and so you know where that interacts with the establishment clause um, is, uh, you know, first the faith-based office doesn't offer federal funds. Uh, they help make uh, faith-based groups and other groups aware of grant opportunities, but they aren't giving out money. Um, and when the federal government does uh, award grants, there can't be favoritism for faith-based groups. It has to be through the same competitive process that uh, all other groups have to go to. The, the government can't favor, you know, unlike the UK that has a, has a you know, Church of England, an official church, uh, we can't favor not only between Christian, Muslim, Jewish, uh, 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 Sikh, Buddhist, Hindu, um, we can't favor denominationally. So we can't favor Methodists over Episcopalians. And so, um, you know, it was, uh, again, it was, uh, uh, you know, uh, maybe 20% of of my work was, you know, stuff that gets the headlines and the controversies, whatever. Um, Most of my work was, was with, you know, 
people of faith and others who are, you know, volunteering in their communities and organizations like Interfaith Furnishings, which is this interfaith group uh, uh, on the East Coast that uh, collects furniture and and distributes it to folks who who don't have it in their home. I mean, just this the beautiful, pure work that's going on that we don't talk about often enough. So tell us a little bit about where what you learned from that work and really sort of the lessons in your book and what you're what you talk about in your book yeah well you know the, well the the purpose of my book is is uh in a lot of ways akin to what what y'all are trying to do on this podcast which is you know i wanted to walk people through um you know, there are a lot of people who talk about hope, even write about hope, and it never seems to, it often doesn't seem to hit against reality. And mm. so, you know, the people who talk most confidently about hope seem to have the least experience with 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 difficult circumstances sometimes. Uh, and, and with, they seem to kind of evade the nitty gritty. And so what I want to do is take readers through some of the most uh, difficult and complicated and, you know, conflict-filled uh, aspects of our politics. And on the other end of that, see um, see if we could find hope, real hope, on the other end of that. And so my book covers uh, the Affordable Care Act. My book covers uh, the president going to Notre Dame calling for uh, us to uh, uh, find a way to find common ground on the issue of abortion. My book covers kind of all the uh, the intersection of faith and the Obama administration uh, without evading any of the difficult conflicts that came up. Um, it, we, it, you know, it, it's become a trope. We, we truly do live uh, in a time of uh, heightened political polarization. And uh, it's polarization that is not just contained to our our politics in DC and our political institutions but it's actually seeped out into our communities uh, we've forgotten how to talk to one another um, and, and so when people read my book what I'm hoping is that you know Democrats will read the book and they probably won't agree with religious conservatives on uh, anything that they didn't agree with them on before though maybe they will um, but I'm hoping that they'll have at least an understanding that religious conservatives aren't, uh, their concerns about the Obama administration weren't all irrational, they weren't all uh, ad hominem, that there were real substantive differences of opinion with the Obama administration. And I'm hoping that religious people read the book and uh, learn that even though they may have disagreed with some of the decisions of the Obama White House, no one there was waking up in the morning uh, thinking, how, how can I anger Christians today? Or how can I anger religious conservatives today? There were actually positive motivations for uh, for policies that uh, the president pursued and that the White House pursued. And again, we could disagree about those motivations, but um, we, we need to take out um, some of the uh, some of the ad hominem, uh, some of the um, some of the vitriol that helps simplify the emotions of politics, but actually muddies the reality of it. Mm. Um, and that's what that's what the book tries to do. This is a question I've been struggling with, Michael. When we think about the polarization in our country, I am increasingly skeptical of the reality of that polarization and seeing it more as kind of the result of marketing. 
And I'm wondering, as someone who's really experienced the disconnect Mm. between what makes headlines and the work that's happening all across the country every day, uh, how do you see that? Yeah, well, well, you know, there's there's truth to that. Um, The problem is so much of our culture and so much of our politics now is marketing. Yeah, it's hard to piece it apart. Exactly. It's hard to pull that apart. I've come to the conviction that our politics uh, truly can't can't change without a development of civic character at the individual level. Mm-hmm. In other words, our politics is not our our citizens are not offering the incentives that would that would pr- provide a sustainable environment for po- politicians to consistently do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And that's a tough thing. Like the easiest thing to say would be, you know, DC's a mess. We need to get rid of everybody there. We need to drain the swamp, et cetera, et cetera. And what we need to understand is that the state of our politics reflects the state of our souls. And so mm-hmm. if you're complaining about DC all the time, you need to think about, you know, what you're falling, uh, what you're falling prey to, you know, uh, do, do you, uh, do you excuse your own tribe, your own political party from doing the same mess that if the other side did it, you just smash them? And if that's true, and if you excuse it, well, you know, we're we're the party that supports policies that will help the people and they, you know, hate Americans. Um, you got to remember the other side thinks the same thing about you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so, uh, you know, there's a lot of self-justification and rationalization that goes on. And so I've been spending a lot of time thinking about um, how do we create a politics? Uh, how do we create a politics that yes, policies are important. Uh, we're going to advocate for different positions, but how do we add as a metric to our vote the culture of our politics? C- can there be a coalition of voters who are thinking not just about I want single payer, I want to protect the Second Amendment, but but thinking about I also care about the way our politicians advance those positions. Uh, And if you're advancing positions, even that I support in a way that demeans and demonizes fellow Americans, then I'm not with it. It's not worth it because Mm -hmm. there's there will be a backlash of uh, you're undermining the dignity of fellow Americans. Uh, political differences actually don't go to the to the very core of who we are. And I know that's an open debate right now, but you could just look at history to find people who thought they were supporting one group of people with one policy and ended up hurting that group of people with that policy. And so we we ought to we ought to have a a, a really thorough humility when we're going into into uh, into politics, and and that'll help with with uh, some of these polarization issues. Well, I think you know, I went to D.C. with my chamber, my local chamber, and we yeah. spoke to John Yarmouth, our sole Democratic representative in the in the Kentucky delegation, and he said this woman pulled him aside at a restaurant and said, you know, we send you we send you up there to compromise and get things done. And he said, with all due respect, no, you don't. That's not how you elect people. You elect people who agree with you at all cost. Mm -hmm. And so why do you why are you surprised when we you elect ideologue extremists on both sides? Yeah. And then they can't get anything done. So yeah. that's not actually who you vote. That's not how you vote. Yeah, and right. one of my favorite things, because I think this gets to the core of everything you were talking about in your article on um, pro-life voters and pro-choice politicians, which is the prudential nature of voting. Yeah. Voting has become about me, about my emotions, about my identity. 
And I don't know a better community than the faith-based community to say, hello, it's not all about you. We live in a group. We live in a society. We're in this together. Every, the guiding light is not you. The guiding light is the group. The guiding light is the, the, the prudential nature of how will this affect other people? How will this politician affect other people? How does this politician talk about other people? And also to the even the to the very sort of framework you're talking about, which is that we seem to have lost the capacity to give the benefit of the doubt to anyone. Mm-hmm. We just can't do it anymore. We just can't say, I see you and I believe that you're doing this for the right reasons, even if I disagree with the outcome. You know, we can't we cannot detach the two. If I disagree with your approach, it means you hate America. We have got to stop that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we do. It's um so on uh on January 9th and I I'm not sure when when this will uh when this conversation will, will come out, but on, on January 9th my my book is um releasing in paperback with a new afterword and, and really the core idea of that afterword is um so, uh, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing to uh, not Paul uh, Ryan. No, not Paul Ryan. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I'm not building my afterword around around Paul Ryan. Uh, uh, the Apostle Paul writes uh, this message to the early church community, uh, the Galatians, that were actually experiencing a time of heightened polarization. There were like all these different people fighting over what Christianity meant. And so they were all trying to live in community, but they were all fighting about a whole bunch of, you know, important issues. Um, uh, But Paul says this amazing thing. He tells them, you would think at times of heightened polarization that the guidance would be, you know, just try not to kill one another, try not to bite one another's heads off. Instead, he says, the most uh, sort of radical guidance you could give, he tells them to bear one another's burdens, which is which is incredible. Uh, so my my afterward actually tries to apply what that would mean for our political community. And, mm. and the short version of that is that um, in this time of heightened polarization, we need to consider a radical form of politics that involves carrying the perspectives and concerns uh, of uh, of those who disagree with us into halls of power that only we could reach Mm. Um, and to make sure that their concerns are heard and addressed even if they're different from ours the reason why this is important is because increasingly politicians are um, uh, pursuing uh, a strategy and a view of politics that is i only need to turn out my base to win and if i could turn out my base more than the other guy can turn out his base or her base then then i'll win and it's over and i get to represent everybody by only appealing to 50 plus one percent of the voters and so you know in a uh in a religious context you know what this means is that there are districts in this country where uh uh you have you know, uh, hypothetically, well, no, I, I actually know this is real, but I, I don't want to. Uh, you, you have uh, some members that represent districts where they feel like they don't have to um, listen to uh, 
the top black pastor in their country because they don't need black voters. They know black voters represent maybe 20% of the electorate, uh, which is significant. That's a fifth of your people, but they know they could win without them. And then there are districts where uh, they don't need to listen to the white megachurch pastor down the street because they know they could turn out a uh, liberal base and that's fine. The, the, the problem with that is that these folks are voting on things that affect all of us. And the social... Um, the social conflict that arises when people feel like they're not represented by their representatives, which, which was the major heartbreak of 2016, which was even before uh, even before the election took place, you knew that on November 9th, 2016, half the country was going to wake up feeling like they no longer had a place in their own country. Mm-hmm. We can't we can't have a politics that's not sustainable for a country. So what would it look like for? Democrats to go to their Democratic members. So imagine 2016. Imagine the Democrats standing up at a town hall with Hillary Clinton and saying, look, I agree with you on basically everything, but I go to church or my next door neighbor is really concerned about religious freedom and you haven't addressed religious freedom concerns at all in your campaign, at least not the religious freedom concerns my neighbor's talking about. So what would you what would you say to that? As president, you're going to be representing everybody. And so what would you say to the millions of Americans who rightly or wrongly feel like religious freedom is at risk under uh, uh, if you if you took the White House, and then you know vice vice versa. Imagine if you know Republicans stood up and said, "Look, uh, we have a mass incarceration uh, uh, problem in this country, and Donald Trump, you you seem to not even care to speak to the concerns of millions of Americans that were incarcerating people and breaking up families without without." compassion without true justice and with great disregard for human dignity and the dignity of families instead neither of those campaigns ever had to confront questions hillary clinton was was are, are you going to push for comprehensive immigration reform tomorrow or next week <laughs> you know donald trump was asked are you going to build the wall you know yesterday or today um and, and that's just not um in a polarized country where our politicians, too many of them, don't feel accountable to all the people, it'll take the people bearing one another's burdens to the politicians in order to change that. Well, and here's the thing. Beth often will will do these beautiful, sort of what you did, these sort of calls for um, moral and ethical approaches. And then I like to follow up with the pragmatic. Also, it's bad for you to have people feel like they're not heard. It's just politically bad. It's not a good idea. It's not a good strategy. Like it's just not a good strategy for either party for half the country to feel like you hate them and don't love our country. Like that's Uh just, it's not a good idea. It's just pragmatic. The pragmatic political reality is not great either. If we just ignore the sort of higher ethical call for this, Like, I just want to look at so many politicians and be like, what's your long game here? Like, do you have one? Because I'm not sure you do. Well, look, like people, you know, um, you know, one thing that's helpful is, um, uh, you know, not to... um, like it actually works. Like I've seen, mm-hmm. I've seen it work. I've, you know, I've run outreach for for a, for a presidential campaign. So I'm not talking pie in the sky kind of stuff. I mean, I worked for a man who 
certainly, when you're president for eight years, you have to make decisions that garner all kinds of, uh, uh, you know, opponents and people who disagree, and that's just sort of the cost of it. But look, when the president ran in 2008, he uh, uh, he was doing interviews with Christianity Today. He was sitting across from Pastor Rick Warren at Saddleback and treating him like a normal human being uh, Mm -hmm. and not like some enemy. Uh, He was someone who gave a speech at Jim Wallace's conference in 2006 that actually said that uh, liberals, his his own people, were wrong to tell people of faith to leave their faith outside the door of our politics. Uh, Mm -hmm. Barack Obama called it a practical absurdity. And so uh, there were these appeals to the better angels of even people who were never going to vote for him. And what that meant was that in November of 2008, even though they lost, there wasn't the sort of, um, there wasn't the sort of, sort of mass disrepair that we saw among a lot of folks in 2016. So let me ask you a hard question. The hard reality, though, is after all that and I think Barack Obama did exhibit good leadership of this. Yeah. We still ended up in 2016. Yeah. So um, my book, in some ways, tracks the trajectory of of this. Um, you know, I, I think the the president and and the and the White House, you know, uh, take take some take some blame. There were uh, there were some key moments where decisions were made to stoke conflict rather than to resolve it for political mm. reasons. I, I think, I think the record is, is, is pretty, pretty, pretty clear on that. Um, and then, you know, we also, as, as Beth mentioned, you know, we just have this, we have this environment that we've created that has in some ways, and I don't mean to diminish the responsibility of, uh, politicians. I don't yeah. mean to diminish the, but we have a, we have an environment that has made polarization so much easier. Uh, we have an environment that lowers the cost for division and actually raises the cost for giving the other side credence. And and so th- that's why I say that after everything, sort of, I've seen and, and been through and been able to see up close, that yes, you can have extraordinary moments of statesmanship. And so, you know, we could, uh, I think, you know, John McCain showed that with his vote on health reform. I think people like, you know, Jeff Flake have shown that. I think we've, you know, we've seen, uh, you know, Ted Kennedy often had these moments where even though he was the liberal line, he'd he'd have these extraordinary moments of of reaching out for for the good of the country to the other side. Um, You could have these extraordinary statesmen and stateswomen and these sort of moments, but that's not sustainable. Uh, And so, you know, after everything I've been through, uh, I've really started to focus on uh, what are the ways that citizens can be made aware of the power they have at Mm -hmm. the grassroots level and and the things that they're doing that they may not even be aware (laughs) that they're doing that contribute to the kind of environment that we have, that we have now. But all of that to say, yes, we should push politicians and you know, particularly advocacy groups. It's often the advocacy groups that are pushing politicians and boxing them in in unhelpful ways. Um, uh, yes, we should push them to to operate as you know good political actors. But at the end of the day, it's 
who are we voting for who are we giving money to as as citizens and as you know politically active citizens and uh and, and what are we allowing in order to advance our political interests that we that we just should not be allowing i love what you said about bearing each other's burdens and i think that Something that is kind of a gating issue to our ability to do that is to be able to hold on to some complexity, both in our faith and in our politics. I really like how you have the theme through all of your work that I've read that that I most relate to is the idea that civic participation is a spiritual imperative, but it is not imperative because it is supposed to fulfill you spiritually. It is supposed Mm. to be an expression of your spirituality. And I I, I saw a video of you saying that you you have to engage in politics with your feet firmly planted in your faith. And it feels to me like that's what's not happening right now. That's that's what's preventing us from bearing one another's burdens, that we have such a shallow understanding of our own spirituality. And then we carry that into our even more shallow politics. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, and I think for people who aren't seriously faith based, you could say our values. Yeah, you don't have to say spirituality. You can say values. Well, you know, it's um, you know to speak of uh, you know the the way that when I go to churches, I say, you know, listen, we, uh, you know. of of all folks should not have any confusion about the fact that we cannot cede our conscience to a political party or platform. Mm -hmm. Um, Like for for it, like you're, we're in church. We have the, we have the Holy word, you know, whatever, whatever faith you are, you have a a script, you you know, it's, it's built into our life. So what has happened that we've allowed, um, this, you know, to use a religious term, this political idolatry to take place. Now, you know, to speak generally to people uh, uh, of of uh, all faiths and none, uh, yes, I, I think all of this is applicable. I think all of these, um, all of these, uh, um, the idea of humility is not just because of faith, but because you can look at just pure history and see people who believed uh uh, that what they were doing was going to be, you know, the ultimate solution, going to pro- provide a utopia, and they end up not only being wrong, but having to spend the rest of their lives making up for the mistake that they made in politics. And so, yes, all all this applies. What what I what I try to I do think what's true for people of faith is that they have unique resources upon which to draw that should make this. Uh, this kind of approach uh, more more likely and more more resource, which is why it's so heartbreaking to see that they're leaving these resources uh, un- untapped <laughs> into. Um, it's it's been a difficult year um, for for faith and, and politics, uh, though you know as we open up the conversation, there have been been bright spots, but the the problem is not. Well, let me say this. So uh, this is an amazing story. So uh, Chancellor Merkel in Germany, um, uh, she was at a town hall and taking questions about um, the migration crisis before it really became a pressing political problem for her. And she got a question from someone 
that was worried about the increase of Muslim migration to Germany. And she she said this amazing thing, and I'm I'm paraphrasing here, but it's just about right. She said the the problem in Germany is not that we have too uh, uh, too many Muslims. That the problem is that our Christians are not Christian enough, which is like a mind blowing thing for a head of state in Germany, in Europe to say. Um, But what she meant was you want all the trappings of the faith and you want to use your faith to keep people out, but you're not really following, you you don't have a charitable heart. You're not not actually living out your faith because if if you were and if we were, then our country wouldn't be in this place. Um, and, and I think that that's an applicable lesson here. The problem is not the liberals or the secular folks, or the problem is that our Christians are not Christian enough. Uh, well, and I think that the the overarching issue here is that it's not just our political institutions that have suffered over the past several decades. Mm. It's our religious institutions as well. And Uh I think that our religious institutions are going through periods of transition, and our religious institutions are having to ask themselves very difficult questions. We're huge fans of Richard Rohr on the podcast, and he had an email a few days ago where he was basically like, you know, we have to give grace to our institutions, but still recognize that they are best oriented to to give us this cohesive message, to help us um, work out our shared values and yeah. to apply those in our lives. And so, I mean, I think that there is the complexity that Beth is always talking about and the, the hard thing we have to hold here is that those institutions need work, too. Yeah. And, and I was just going to going to say th- the, the real temptation here is to withdraw from those institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, when, we did that. Beth and I both did that. That's why we're nodding. Right. And, and, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, uh, not just our religious institutions, uh, you know, when we talk about political parties, people always complain about how polarized uh, our parties are. Well, w- one of the problems, and this may be counterintuitive to some folks, but we have the highest the highest percentage of Americans uh, 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 identifying as political independence in history. Wow. 40, 45% of Americans are political independents. And so what you'd think, well, these are people who are really, you know, saying a pox on both your houses. They're showing us a new way. No, they're not doing any of that. What they're doing is they're uh, taking out of the political parties any cause for nuance, any cause for checking their own ambitions. In other words, our political parties are now left of basically just the true believers who mm-hmm. who, who believe that they're, you know, fighting the righteous cause and the, the other folks are, are evil. What we need are people, independently minded people who see our political parties for what they are, which is just vehicles for carrying the political aspirations and ideas of of the American people, not sort of these uh uh you know big brother cracking down on your conscience we need we need political parties that have robust debates within them yeah Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible and skincare is a huge piece of that I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added ritual to my routine which just gives me a lot of comfort ritual is here for us they have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, 
And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. that part of the reason everything that we just described is happening is because so many people's experience of faith is one of judgment instead of one of love, right? Mm. And that's the expression of faith that is being carried into politics. It is an expression of judgment instead of love. And I think that's why your piece on abortion resonated so much with us because the conversation that we had about Roy Moore before we read your piece was that It feels from the faith community, which came out to support Donald Trump, like everything is relative except abortion, which is absolute. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that comes from a really um, hurt and broken experience Mm. of faith. Mm. Yes. And it comes it, it comes from a 
uh, you know, a politically weaponized mm. invocation of faith, you know? So, uh, you know, this stuff didn't all come out of, out of thin air. There's a, there's a scholar um, that uh, there's been a lot of work done over the last, even just the last five years um uh, uh, and I'm forgetting the scholar's name, but he wrote a book, uh, the the rights turn in conservative religious politics or in evangelical politics. I'll I'll try and try and send you all the link, and maybe you could include it on the website. But there's there's been a lot of historical look to look at how abortion came to take such a place in conservative religious politics because because it wasn't always that way. Uh, this is you know kind of well known now, but even during you know the fights over Roe v. Wade. Uh, evangelicals were actually relatively silent on abortion. It was only the Catholic Church that was really fighting, uh, fighting that battle. Evangelicals came came after, and, and what happened is um, there was a marriage of convenience uh, within mm. the Republican Party, so that you'd have voter guides going out to churches that yes had abortion and gay marriage, but then somehow you know also had the capital gains tax. And I don't know. I've I've read my Bible pretty closely. I I can't remember like a precise. Uh, you know, prescription for at what rate capital gains should be taxed, you know, but somehow, somehow that made it onto the voter guide. Uh, and so we've seen this, this, this weaponization of faith that is not meant to help guide people, but, but is meant to oppress them. And, and it is meant to make them feel a moral burden that is, um, that is, that politics is not worthy of. Mm-hmm. And, and, and understand, I'm not, I've spent my life in politics. I'm not saying politics is unimportant, but when you have folks who are uh, who are uh, thinking of uh, their vote and thinking of their their engagement in politics uh, in such a morally burdened way, that works to the benefit of advocacy groups who will be able to squeeze more money out of you if you think your your soul is on the line, or yep. it'll help politicians if uh, even if you don't like them, you can they can make you hate the other person uh, so much that at least you won't vote for them. Um, it, it, we we need to understand that uh, the way that we're thinking about politics uh, is not just through our own sort of. Uh, self introspection. Yeah. It's it's because it's to the benefit of people in power. Uh, now I'm I'm pro life. I, I think the life issue is tremendously uh, important, and I understand that there are people who think it's even more important than I do. So the point of my article was not to say y- y'all should care about abortion less. The point of the argument was: look, if you're going into the voting booth, and when you ask yourself the question. Who would better serve the people of Alabama? Who would better serve the country? And if your answer is Doug Jones, in other words, if, if you if you look at Doug Jones or Roy Moore and say, Doug Jones is clearly the more uh, competent, qualified senator who will, who will help the flourishing of my state and my neighbors better than Roy Moore, but, there's, but you still go, but I can't support him because abortion. I just want you to... To rethink what what is motivating your vote, and if if your uh, if your guiding ethic is leading you to vote in a way that is not for the best of your neighbor, as you determine it. I mean, uh, this came out of a direct conversation I had with someone who said, "Yeah, Doug Jones is probably a better better senator, but I just couldn't do it." 
uh, a bit, my, my conscience would be too burdened as if Jesus doesn't know your heart, you know, for Christians, you, you know, as if, as if, uh, Jesus has numbered the hairs on your head, but when you go in the voting booth, you're shutting him out too. Uh, the Catholics have this idea of, um, uh, 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 the, the Catholic doctrine uh, uh, the, the, on, on this is not that you can't vote for a pro-choice po- politician. Uh, the, the doctrine is that for Catholics, and they, you know, Catholic Church is, is very hierarchical. They could they determine what Catholic doctrine is, and Catholics, individual Catholics, can disagree. But but Catholic doctrine is Catholic doctrine. Uh, uh, they say the Catholic position is pro-life, but they don't say you can't. Uh, vote for a pro-choice politician. They, they say basically you have to vote for a pro-choice politician in spite of their position on the issue, not because of it. In mm-hmm. other words, they acknowledge that there are going to be we we have an imperfect political system that is made up of imperfect choices, and, and as long as you're voting with intentions and motivations that are aimed towards the love of God and love of neighbor, um, you shouldn't be uh, burdening yourself simply because you have to choose between choices that you didn't even make. You know, you know, like a yeah. lot of the people who are worrying about this, they voted for Luther Strange. If they could have voted for Luther Strange, they would have voted for Luther. That embrace of imperfection, I think, would solve so much. Like, my understanding of these issues is imperfect as a voter, right? My political philosophy is imperfect as a voter. My politicians are always going to be imperfect. We are always going to have the lesser of two evils, if that's how you look at it. Because people are always imperfect. You know, as a Republican, my chief criticism of the Obama administration was never really about substance. It was more about process. It was, I I really agree with you about DACA. I don't think that should have happened via executive order. Right? But I can say that I the Republican Party started losing me when it became about hating President Obama. Because I want to love my president whether I agree with that person on everything or not, right? And if I'm comfortable in myself as an imperfect human being, then I can be comfortable with our president as an imperfect president. And I can have a view on all this that is much more nuanced um, than deciding that this is my mortal enemy. I would never (laughs) approach anyone in my faith community the way that we approach our politicians. And that's what's really confusing to me. Why can't we bring that sense of we're all sinners right to the political sphere in a way that would be so much healthier. And, and Mm -hmm. again, going back to Sarah's kind of pragmatism on this stuff as a person of faith, if I want more people of faith, that is also the approach (laughs) I need to bring to this party. Yeah. Well, and here's the thing. And I think Obama did this so well. And I think that the, his, the reason people, his approval rating was so high when he left is because he brought that this is not the most important thing to me, and I'm the president of the United States mm. of America. He That's always right. had that, I have values outside of this. I have value outside of this. There are things that are important to me that have nothing to do with politics. And you could feel that when he talked. I mean, the day after the election, what he said was so beautiful. Yes, the, sun, the sun came up. Like, he just, yeah. he had that, and he, he can lead from that space. And I think yeah. that was really, really positive, and I do think he laid the the foundation 
for like, oh, the, yeah, it feels good when somebody isn't all wrapped up in it. And we miss that. And we recognize the vast difference in Trump, who is who <laughs> can't see outside himself, doesn't seem to have any values outside himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that 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 caught co- that contrast, I think, has become an, an even sharper relief because, you know, if you don't, if you can't see that the sun will come up and that you have values and what's important beyond this vote or this election or this piece of policy, then everything is so high stakes, you can justify any behavior. That's right. I, I talk a bit about Brittany Packnett, um, who's a activist and, and a really inspiring leader um, in, in the new afterward for, for reclaiming hope. And, um, you know, Brittany's amazing. She, she is working on some of the most intractable justice issues of our time. Uh, and yet she, she has made very clear in her social media presence and conversations with me that even as difficult as her activism is, um, she's not going to let politics take her joy. Mm. And, that she communicates that is so powerful uh, to awesome. folks who would who would lose themselves in the pure power of the work that she's doing. In other words, she thinks her her work is so important that it's 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 just as important to emphasize that there's stuff outside of it. Just as you said, um, I think of you know I disagree with Senator Ben Sass on quite a bit, but to have a senator. Uh, serving, who's obviously dedicated at least this portion of his life to public service, say something like politics is not ultimate, is is a powerful testimony for the country country to see that you could be spending you know 18 hours a day working in the U.S. Senate representing people and still think it's not politics isn't the the be all end all is well, is uh, if, we need more if you. If you present yourself as just a politician, then that's all people will see you are as. If that's what illustrates you and that's what motivates you, people will see that. People will see that that's all you are. I was just at a community breakfast and we had a our former state senator for about 20 years who began as a Democrat, became a Republican, then became an independent over the course of those 20 years, a very yeah. beloved in our community, and he is now the judge executive of our county, and he was giving the state of the county address. And at the end, we are facing a um, very dire ken- pension price crisis in con- the state of Kentucky. And he stopped and he said, I don't know if you're a praying soul, but if you are, pray mm-hmm. for the men and women in Frankfurt. And he had to stop for like a solid three minutes to compose himself because he was getting really, really upset emotionally. And he said, I was there for 20 years. People called me all kinds of nasty things. They didn't treat me like a person and it won't even touch what they're about to do. It's stressful. It's hard. And we need to remember that these are human beings Mm -hmm. doing this work and treat them accordingly and pray for them. And even if we disagree with their approach, hope the best for them. And I thought that was such a great thing to say. Like, just Mm -hmm. we can see that at the local level because we're with these people. We lose it at some point. No, that's exa- that's exactly it. I, I often say, you know, uh, uh, when, you know, faith leaders will tell me, you know, how can I engage with government? And, you know, obviously I work for the federal government, want to encourage partnership there. But, you know, I tell them, look, your mayors and your city councilmen, they aren't thinking about, uh, you know, the, the last Trump tweet. They're not thinking about the big, you know, culture war issues. They're thinking about how they can get, you know, potholes fixed. They're thinking yeah. about how the garbage can be picked up. Uh, uh, they they actually have immediate responsibility 
for the trains running on time, both both literally and metaphorically. And so there's a lot of opportunity for political partnership locally that seems a bit more difficult nationally uh, at, at this point, though I think that, you know, because our national politics is setting so much of the tone for our culture uh, that that we can't leave that to the side but yeah. uh, you know th- there are local expressions that can feed up to the national level and that's happened before it could happen happen now well i want to wrap up with asking you about a quote from another one of your blog posts you wrote while we feel as though we are looking toward the future and while our activity is consumed with the present i am convinced that in reality we are stuck in the past I think God is way ahead of where we are right now. The present is the past. I would love for you to just talk a little bit about that. Hmm. Yeah. So, so that post was um, was a really personal post, and it was, um, you know, written in a you know particular context where, uh, th- you know, this last year has been you know, difficult for the country. Obviously, uh, it's been difficult for. Uh, for evangelical Christians in in other ways uh, to see, um, I think so many so many things, especially younger Christians, kind of uh, kind of took their parents' generation at their word that they really believed in certain stuff, like you know politicians should uh, that character and ethics was important for politicians, and you know we should be looking out for one another, not just be self-aggrandizing blowhards uh, <laughs> uh, and you know all of this stuff is bubbling up um, and, and you're starting to see especially among some of my peers and I want to be delicate here I, I, I've fallen you know prey to it too but you've start, started to see um, folks engaging politically and, and culturally and even within the faith as if they're as if their mission was to win the battles that their that their parents fought, and like mm. that that the, their everything was was actually backwards looking. When I, what I want to point out is that so much of what we're seeing in sort of uh, evangelical politics right now are the are the last fumes of an older model of engagement. I mean, look, Franklin Graham, uh, Franklin Graham's time is past. Uh, you know, it, 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 even if he's making headlines today, well, what I want to encourage, especially young people to be doing, this is across the board. This is why I'm so excited about the work of the Obama foundation is that if we, if young people are focused on fighting the battles of the last uh, several decades, instead of building for the future, Instead of trying to build towards where I think God already is, uh, then we're going to find that we've wasted a whole bunch of potential. We've wasted a whole lot of emotional energy um, just trying to uh, trying to do this sort of uh, self-healing in public that is not productive. Mm. <laughs> and so, so that's that's what um, that's what that post was about. I wanted to help uh, highlight my peers uh, who who often talk as if 
they're waiting for their moment. And I wanted to point at the work that they were doing now and say, it is your moment. And mm-hmm. if you're if you're missing that the future that you're that you're pining for, that you're saying, oh man, I can't wait till we have some influence and things will change. If that's the way that you're thinking, you're actually gonna miss out on what you're building now and the fact that you have influence and people who listen to you now. Uh, and we can actually turn the page on the Ralph Reeds and the Jerry Fellow Juniors now, but not if all we do is talk about how awful they are and this and that, <laughs> you know? Like, we're actually empowering them by talking about them all the time. <laughs> well, we always say, like, oh, man, if we could just sit down with a fresh sheet of paper. And I think I'm going to stop saying that because, one, <laughs> we're not. We're just yeah, not. Right, right, and. Yeah. Two, I think I'm realizing that I have to give, and I think this is definitely where my faith journey has come. Like, I, the institutions are not going to disappear. No one's yeah. going to give me our generation a fresh sheet of paper and be like, start from scratch. Like, right. we have to give the institutions and the people who inhibited them and the choices that were made some grace and say, this is what we're working with, and we need institutions and a society. And so yeah. let's talk about what the next phase is instead of waiting for It's like the Rob Bell has a great podcast that we've talked about before where he says, he uses a line from um, Chariots of Fire where they're out, all sitting around deciding what to do. And they say, we need to ask the committee. And the guy says, we are the committee. That's we right. are the committee. So yep. it's like when people are like, oh, Americans are disturbed by the, the direction of the country. We're driving the car. Like, yeah. what are you mad about? So exactly right. let's do it. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, I, I just want to thank you all for the work that you do. I think uh, we need more. Uh, conversations like this modeled for the country. I mean, part of what's happened in this country is that we just lost the imagination that we could mm. disagree and still be friends and 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 have have disagreements that don't run to the core of of our very essence. And um, I, I hope that your work flourishes. I hope um, to see uh, other efforts that help model this kind of uh, a civic, impassioned, you know, heartfelt uh, dialogue. And and I'm just grateful for the work y'all do well thank Thank you so much much. we're grateful for your work as well it has been a tough year to find models of christianity that i feel really good about and uh, your work certainly gives me hope in that regard thank you so much for being here well and we wanted to invite you to participate in our last section of the show we take a few minutes at the last section and talk about what's on our minds outside politics yeah do you have any more minutes to hang for that oh yeah thank you So what is on your mind outside of politics? <laughs> well, uh, you know, a few things. So I am, uh, you know, my, so my my wife uh, works for the British. And so, you know, when the crown comes out, we are, oh, man, you know, so we're in it, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, there's a lot going. So the, uh, you know, the BBC is airing uh, this new a documentary with Queen Elizabeth, which is going to be a blast because, you know, we all know her now uh, through yeah, Netflix. We're <laughs> yeah, we're, we're tight. Uh, yeah. uh, and and so, you know, I've been, uh, we just finished the second season, so that's been that's Okay, been I just finished good. that episode where the guy criticizes the monarch Lord, what's his name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That episode was so good and is like so to the core of exactly what we're just talking about. It, it's such a good episode. You know, they have a there was an episode in the first season, I think episode six, or maybe it was earlier, um, of the uh, of her coronation. Um, With the televising? Oh, okay. Yes. And 
it was sim- like one of the most moving hours of television I've ever seen. Well, the so. thing on the first season I'm obsessed with is remember when she wants to hire out of the order of seniority? Yeah. And the guy says, individualization is where the rot gets in. I think about that quote twice a day. <laughs> twice a day. She yeah. talks about it on every podcast. All, I every drink that when Sarah mentions it. If you have a bingo for fancy politics, individualization is where the rot gets in. It should be your center square. It's just so true. And I think about it all the time. And like, but also like she just that that at that show about talk about somebody that started with one type of world and now lives in another and had to in- inhibit this institution that had to. Tr- right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. She but she couldn't she couldn't check out the institution just because no. it, it didn't fit her, you know, unique, you know, <laughs> snowflake, you know, person. That, like she had to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, everybody watch the crown. Everybody. Yeah. And then uh, I just have to give a shout out. My favorite movie of 2017 was Lady Bird. Oh, and so I will good. I will never stop watching that movie. That movie hits me somewhere I didn't know existed. I and and Saoirse Ronan is just like, I hope we get to watch her for the next like 60 years. I mean, Saoirse Ronan is just the most Beautiful. talented actress. Gorgeous. Yeah. Love it. Love is yeah. attention. Oh, just bursting into tears. Please. Cannot <laughs> even with that. So. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so, and then, you know, to move out of like, uh, uh, you know, t- TV and movies, um, I am getting back into, so I'm Italian, uh, as I mentioned, and I am, uh, I've been trying to get back to and carve out more time for, for cooking. And so Ooh, this is, uh, best, this is best wheelhouse. I'll step out of this one. Cause I'm so, cook. so I'm like, uh, you know, trying to perfect my fresh pasta. And so I've been mm-hmm. trying to cook fresh pasta once, uh, every week or two. I made uh no so I I'm not a big like celebrity like fan uh, you know I don't fan on a lot of people there's a <laughs> there's a chef Lydia Bastianich uh who uh if I met her my wife thinks I I'd pass out and I probably would uh, she <laughs> is she has a PBS show uh if you've ever been in New York or Chicago, she is a co-owner of uh, Italy, which is the stuff. Oh, yeah. So she runs. So she runs that, and she her cookbooks are the only thing I cook through. Uh, uh, and and you know, so so Lydia's always on my mind. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna get one of those books for my husband. What's your oh, best good. pasta that you make? Um, you know, so my wife loves. Uh, I make salsa uh, salsa genovese, which is basically an onion sauce. I mean, you cook. It's like a pork, like a five pound pork shoulder with five pounds of onions. And and you hear that and you think, oh my, like so many onions. But you cook it for like four hours. It mellows out. It's my wife's favorite thing. It's it's really good. Yeah. So uh, you might be able to find the recipe online, salsa genovese. Uh, but yeah, my uh, my wife makes me cook it like at least once every couple months. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think you covered both. Beth, do you have anything to add? What's on outside uh, on your mind? Mine's definitely the crown, too. I'm all up in season two. I'm not cooking um, any pasta right now because I'm doing Whole30, <laughs> which is taking a lot of my yeah. attention. Yeah, um, I want to mention this. Dis- I have finally discovered a form of exercise that is fun for me, and I feel like that is worthy of talking about. Um, mm-hmm. Are you familiar with the Simply Fit board? 
No. Okay, I'm a big Shark Tank fan, and I love buying Shark Tank products because I feel like I'm just in it with these people and their American dreams, and let's go get them. So we saw the Simply <laughs> Fit board on Shark Tank, and I texted my mother, and I was like, this is what I want you to buy me for Christmas. It looks like... Maybe a skateboard with no wheels and the edges are curved upward, like the edges have curled okay. up. So just standing on it is exercise because it's mm-hmm. it's tough to balance. But you just sort of twist. Like, it's so easy and it's super fun and I can just throw on a good playlist and, like, spend about 10, 15 minutes. I'm sore everywhere, literally Yay. everywhere. But it's really, really fun. And it's something I can do like while I'm watching TV. I listened to the daily this morning um, while I was doing it. So I just want to give a shout out to the Simply Fit Board and the family that is making those. I hope that you make oodles and gobs of money and are very happy. Love it. Cool, cool, Love cool. it. All right. Well, thank it you was- again, Michael. It was so fun to have you on. It was so great. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us, everybody. We will be back tomorrow on The Nuanced Life with a new episode over there and then back again here on Friday with our shorter episode known as The Briefcase. Until then, please rate and review on iTunes. It helps other people discover Pantsuit Politics. You can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at PantsuitPoliticsShow.com or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Until next week, keep it nuanced, y'all. Thank you so much to our executive producers, Nicholas, Chad, Tracy, Leslie, Sabrina, and George. You can join us on social media, Instagram and Facebook at Pantsuit Politics and on Twitter at Pantsuit Politic, no S. And if you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com or reviews are always helpful and you can leave one through the Apple Podcast app. Thank you to Dante Lima, the composer of our Pantsuit Politics theme music. 